seen so far in this book of Acts is the remarkable growth of the small community that started in Jerusalem with Jesus and his followers. A bunch of Jewish followers in Jerusalem a few years earlier. And, and now, especially since chapter 10, uh, we have the global expansion of this church. Uh, as outsiders, what the Bible calls Gentiles, non-Jewish people, increasingly identify with Jesus and his people. But as the family grows larger and more diverse, that's what's happening in 10, 11, 12, and 13, there are also some growing pains. And uh, we sort of see that tonight with what I will call a family fight. A, uh, and at the heart of this, the, the question is, maybe two questions are related, is uh, how do you get to be a member of this family? And does becoming a member of the family mean you have to look like us? Because for thousands of years... Being a part of God's people meant being Jewish. What's this family look like now? What's it supposed to be like? Because this becomes a worldwide, diverse people of God. So I'm going to read uh, a lot of Acts 15. And uh, feel free to follow along up there. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Barnabas and Paul and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. And being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they brought great joy to all the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test, placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe they will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related to what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his own name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. We should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in synagogues. And then it seemed good to the apostles and elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And they sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. Brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings, since we've heard that some persons have gone out from us 
and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you of the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what's been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. All right. I'm going to pray. Feel free to join me. Great Father, we ask that you be kind to meet us in our weakness, uh, whether it's weakness of speech, weakness of thought, weakness of heart and hearing. Meet us there, Lord, and show us great things, especially show us the love of Jesus. We ask these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. I may have shared this one before. I feel like I've got to the point where I'm saying that every other week now. Uh, a number of years ago, I went abroad, and when I came back, I bought some things with me, one of which was a growing case of inexplicable warts. Beware when you go abroad. The study abroad things look really good. There's no warts on the pictures outside the study abroad office, but you might come back with them anyway. And uh, this was really strange. I never had any such thing before. And uh, I was a poor grad student, and so I was looking for some dermatological help, and I ended up in this office. And uh, the guy's like, well, you know, this is a virus, and we could remove... I had like six or seven or eight of them. I'd never had one before. I had, they just came out of nowhere. And, uh, and they were like here and here and there. Uh, anyway, he's like, well, you know, I can remove them by freezing them. I'm like, yes, I know that hurts. Or I could cut them. I'm like, yes, I know that hurts. So, or you could try this experimental medicine. And, uh, you know, this is 20 years ago. And uh, I was, again, a poor grad student. So I'm like, sure. And uh, he disappeared and came back with a, a brown bottle. No label at all. <laughs> no directions or anything. And that's important. They had no directions because he told me what to do and I didn't remember. Um, not exactly. I came close to remembering. He basically said, hey, like occasionally every now and then take, take a, uh, I think it was like every day. Maybe this is part of the problem. I still don't know. Um, what he told me was you, you, you take a Q-tip and you dip it in and you simply touch one of your warts once a day and in five or six days one of them will begin to get inflamed and after that a lot of them will begin to get inflamed and after two weeks they'll all be inflamed and after a month they'll go away well um again this is experimental it sounded like you know a traveling salesman it should be on like the home shopping network or something. it's just too too good to believe right uh, well i forgot his instructions and and put the medicine on every one of them. And I am no doctor or immunologist, but this is what was happening, right? So this virus was flying underneath my immune system, right? And not fighting it. And with this medicine, whatever this stuff was, did, was basically yell from my warts, hey, I'm here, come and kill me. And uh, so within like a week, I'm not breaking out like here and there, I'm breaking out everywhere. My whole skin, everywhere, is inflamed, red, and itchy. And I called them. I'm like, hey, like my, my, my body's on fire. Like, <laughs> like everything's red. And he's like, 
how are you doing this? I'm like, I'm putting them on everyone like you said. He's like, that's not what I said. <laughs> anyway, why do I tell you that story? Um, because metaphorically speaking, it's, it's uh, hard to know when to fight, how to fight. Our immune system doesn't always fight the way it's supposed to. we got to say, hey, wake up, do your job. Um, and uh, this is a bit of a stretch, but it works. The, the church is sort of like this. The church in the world is a bit like this. There are threats to it all the time, just like there are threats to our body. There are threats to it all the time. But, but when is the right time to fight? What are the right things to fight? And how are they supposed to fight? How are we supposed to fight? Consider this. In chapter 12, we studied this last week, James is killed. Peter is imprisoned and threatened with death. No fight. No jailbreak. No picketing. There was no fight at all, right? In chapters 13 and 14 that we skipped, uh, Paul and Barnabas are persecuted, stoned, like they're stoned, dragged out of town and left for dead. No fight. They actually get up and go back to town the next day and keep on going. So the question might be like, do you fight ever? Does the church ever fight back? And here in chapter 15, verse 1, some guys come down from Judea and they're teaching, unless you're circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. Now it's on. A fight follows. These are fighting words. Does not strike any of you as the slightest bit odd? Like, people are imprisoned, people are beat up, people are stoned, no fight. And someone comes and says, unless you do this, you can't be saved. And the fight is on. These are fighting words. Why? What gives? And, and what, what's going on here, what the Bible makes clear, is that the greatest threat to the church and to the good news of Jesus is not anything external. No external political authority, nothing out there. It is internal corruption. It's the loss of the integrity of the good news of the message. And uh, what we're going to see tonight is that if you're a Christian, you're called to participate in this fight. And I know that's scary as all get out for some of you. Because you've been in, perhaps, churches or you've seen churches where they seem, like, you know, like that medicine did to my immune system, they seem to fight everything. They fight causes. They fight friends. They fight themselves. You've been part of a warring party your whole life. And it seems exhausting. And you're tired of getting beat up. But the question is this, do you know what's worth fighting for? And uh, my hope is that you'll see tonight that uh, this is a fight for the goodness of the gospel. And that is good for the world. Um, I want us to sort of train our senses, if you will, to, to know when to fight and how to do so for the goodness of the gospel. So it's going to require a couple things of us, that we're clear about the gospel and confident about its truth and charitable to those who believe it. So we have to be clear about the gospel, confident about its truth, and charitable to those who believe it. Believe it or not, that's not exactly my outline. Uh, one gracious truth, two God-given proofs, and three grievous lies. Okay, So one gracious truth that we have to be clear about. One gracious truth that we have to be clear about. That's what the gospel is. The situation, again, is pretty simple. Some folks come down to Antioch, where Paul is. We actually studied this all last semester in Galatians. This is what happened in Galatians. Basically, they're hanging out, and some guys show up, and they say, Hey, James sent us. James makes it later clear in this letter he sends, like, uh, They said they came from me, but I gave them no instructions. Like, they made up that stuff. 
they come down and they begin to teach that if you're really a Christian, you trust in Jesus and you have to do some stuff. And that stuff is you have to act like you're Jewish. You have to, uh, you have to be saved. In order to be saved, you have to be circumcised. That is, take the sign, the Old Testament sign of belonging to God's people and keep the Old Testament law. So to be a Christian, even if you were born in Rome, it, you needed to look and act like you were Jewish. Trust in Jesus and become a faithful Old Testament Jewish observer. Okay? I'm not going to revisit all that because I talked about it all last semester. But that's their contention. And these are the fighting words. And that leads to, according to Luke, no small uh, dissension. Um, master of subtlety. Understatement. And this, is a, this is a ruckus. This is a fight. Uh, when, when Paul describes this in Galatians, he says, Hey, Peter was in with this, and I opposed him to his face. Okay? When's the last time you opposed someone to their face? Especially a person of authority. Well, this is a apostle v. apostle, face to face, arguing about it. And it's because there's so much at stake. Is the gospel of Jesus gracious? Is it about Jesus' performance or ours? Um, and, and about the global nature of the community. Is the gospel, what Jesus is doing in the world, what God's doing in the world, is it gracious and an open invitation for the whole world to come and join the one worldwide family? Or... This is an invitation for everyone to become Jewish. And, and Paul was really clear on this. He, he tells Peter, look, we're justified by faith, not by works of the law. And he asked Peter, look, hey, Peter, uh, God already taught you this lesson. We, taught, we told you this a few weeks ago in Acts chapter 10. You don't have to live like this. You don't have to follow those laws anymore. You now live like a Gentile. You live like a Gentile, Peter? Are you not going to require all the Gentiles act like Jews? And uh, basically, he's persuasive, and Peter's repents, and Peter, it's Peter here in this chapter that provides the clarification. Basically, this is such a big deal. This is a huge deal, by the way. We're talking about the whole integrity of the gospel message and what it will look like in the world. Uh, it's such a big deal that they call a conference. And this conference, this council... Uh, Peter stands up in verse 6 and 7, and having been set straight and rebuked by Paul, he sets everyone else straight. And he says in verse 8, listen, salvation came by faith. It was by faith. When, when, when God sent me to the Gentiles, all I did was speak, and they heard and they believed, and, and God saved them. Having believed God, verse 9, he cleansed their hearts, he forgave them. And he sums it all up in verse 11 by saying, listen, they, like us, are saved through the grace of Christ. So theologians over the years have put this pretty simply, but as clearly as we can, to make it clear that salvation, belonging to God, is a matter of being saved by grace alone, no works of yours involved, no performance, only His, all grace, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. The... Uh, I used to be able to get to the board. Then our music team blew up. Uh, in other words, the, uh, the troublers are saying, you have to trust in Jesus plus the works of circumcision. Well, well I'm not going to draw anything. That could get dangerous. Um, uh, and that equals salvation. 
And, and Paul's making it really clear in verse 11 that, that Jesus plus nothing is what leads to salvation. And if you put anything in here, you're jeopardizing the whole thing. That it's faith alone in Jesus and his grace that makes us right with God. And that's basically um, is what Paul says as well. And uh, this is the one gracious truth of the gospel. We have to be clear about it. That's what this whole council is about. And uh, let me give an example of this. Uh, it's sports time, so I want to talk about baseball, but I don't have one. Um, and uh, n- none of you know this guy. There's a guy named Dickie Simpkins who played basketball in the NBA, the Chicago Bulls. He played for a few years in the mid-'90s. And when he did so, he won three titles. That's as many as LeBron James, who will never win another one. <laughs> I hate the Lakers so much. It's great. <laughs> and um, anyway, um, he won three titles. And that means Dickie Simpkins has three rings. He has as many NBA championship rings as LeBron James. Uh, and yet, uh, in 1996 and 1997, uh, Dickie Simpkins recorded zero points, zero rebounds, zero assists, zero blocks, zero steals in all the playoffs. Because Dickie Simpkins never saw the floor. He did not play a game in all those series. And yet, his championship ring looks just like Michael Jordan's. And that is a great picture of what it looks like for us to have the salvation that Jesus worked for us. He did all the work. He lived the perfect life. Bore our sin. We get his record. We wear the ring, if you will. We contributed nothing. That's what, it's, that's what it means to be saved. That's what it means to trust in Jesus. Um, he did all the work. We don't get the credit. And that is about as clear as uh, we can make it here from, from Acts 15. Um, it is still the case that there are some people today, both in the, in the academy, scholars, and outside the academy, movements, works, uh, folks that claim to be Christians that would contend this is not true. They, they might contend that uh, that uh, this Jesus-centered consensus took centuries and centuries to become clear. You might actually get that in like a New Testament class here. Uh, I just want to point out, this was done by 52. We have every reason to believe this council happened by 52, within 20 years of the death of Jesus. There is absolute clarity about what the gospel is it's all grace, all Jesus. And, uh, and there's reason for us to be confident uh, because of this. That if it's all grace, it's all Jesus, we can be confident. We're given two God-given proofs that this is true. Uh, I love this. I love what happens here. First, uh, the, the first proof is what God has done. And here Peter stands up, and I'm not going to say everything he just did, but what he's doing in verses 7 to 11 is he's calling God to witness. If this is a trial... He's putting sort of God on the witness stand. He's saying, hey, remember, this is verse 7. Hey, remember what God did? He initiated us going to the Gentiles. He sent me to the Gentiles. And when I went, well, I preached. And if you remember Acts 10 when we talked about it, Paul, Peter didn't much know what he was doing. Like, he was halfway clueless much of the time. Why am I here? What do you want me to do? Uh, like, we want you to preach. Okay. And so he started preaching. And what did God do? God forgave their hearts. God gave the Holy Spirit. Peter here is saying, like, every aspect of what happened when God sent me to the Gentiles, to the outsiders, it was God's initiative. God did it. I didn't do it. They didn't do it. God did it. 
Let's, if we want to know what, how people are saved, let's look back at what God has done. He sent us to these outsiders and he brought them to himself. And he, he makes it really clear in verses 9 and 11. Look, we're saved the exact same way they are, completely by grace. No effort or performance of our own. And he goes on to say in verse 10, hey, you guys that are trying to stick something else in the equation, some aspect of your performance, some aspect of I have to do this or I have to be good enough, you are putting God to the test. You're putting God to the test because he has made it really clear how God makes us right. And it has nothing to do with your performance at all. So uh, Peter stands up and says, look what God did. And then Paul stands up and basically says the same thing in verse 12, only it's a little more recent. We have reason to believe what Paul's talking about, what Peter's talking about, happened like eight to ten years earlier. But Paul's saying, listen, I, I just came off the field, just came off the field. You know, they beat me up, yeah, they stoned me and dragged me out of the town, left me for dead. But before that, <laughs> they heard the gospel. Their hearts were changed. And God confirmed that it was a true gospel by doing signs and wonders. God's still at work. God's still speaking right now. He's still at work there, bringing people to himself. And so uh, one line of evidence, one proof that this is true is that God is at work, bringing these people to himself. And then James, lastly, stands up in verses 13 and following. This seems to be James, brother of Jesus. The other James was killed last week. It wasn't really last week. A long time ago. But uh, last week in chapter 12, we saw uh, James beheaded. This is James, brother of Jesus. And, and what he has to share is not so much what God has done, but what God has said, what God has promised. And, and James takes us all the way back to the Old Testament. And I, I don't know if he's just showing off. I don't know why he picks Amos, but he picks Amos. He could have picked any number of texts, frankly. But he's like, I, don't know, I feel like he's, this is like the left-handed sword fighting thing in The Princess Bride. Like, let me show you how good I am. Oh, that's not really in my hand. He could have picked any number of texts and said, I'll show you from Amos even. That this has always been God's intention to bring the, the nations, the outsiders, to himself by grace. And he simply tells a story. Listen, listen what God promised. He promised that the fallen line of David, the ruined line of David, the, the promised heir, he promised us that a king would come that would save everyone. Well, he's going to raise that line up. And he's going to save the nations. He's going to bring people to himself. And James says, this is what's happening. Just like God promised, God sent a son of David, Jesus. And because of his good work, we're seeing all kinds of people come and join the family. In other words, what we have here is an agreement. An agreement between what God is doing in the world and what God promised to do. And uh, this is an effective way of, of, of James sort of shutting down the discussion and saying to these troublers, you can stop troubling now. God's been really clear in the Bible how we're saved and how people come uh, to know Him and what you're doing is opposing God. And it's a reminder that we can be confident of the truth. We can be confident of God's grace. Uh, I, I tried long and hard to think of an illustration um, to help you understand the nature of the confidence of this, and I'm not sure I got a good one, but I'll try. I think a little bit of what's going on here with the, the nature of the proof that's being offered that lends us confidence in the settled, gracious love of Jesus might be best understood, not best, might be barely, possibly understood, in uh, the difference between married love, as it's supposed to be, 
And dating love. Dating love, by the way, we're probably going to do this next year, so a whole series on it. Get ready for suffering and anger, righteous indignation. Anyway, um, uh, dating love, although enjoyable, especially moment to moment, is often fraught with insecurity. What do they mean by that? What, why are they upset? Is it me? Why have they not texted me back? Are they interested in that person? I'm not sure they really like me. Am I smart enough? Am I cute enough? Am I what enough? Where is this thing going? Is it going anywhere? There's insecurity involved. And often that insecurity sort of begs the question like, what do I need to do differently? What do I need to do better? My performance plays a part. Married love? A little different. You know, as it should be. Not every marriage is the way it should be, of course. I don't need to tell you things you don't know. But, you know, if I was counseling someone who's married, who struggles to, to, to rest in whether or not they're married, loved by their spouse, I would remind them, uh, did they stand up before God and many witnesses and take a vow and pledge to love you till death do you part? Yes. Did you believe they meant it? Yes. Did they put a, le- a pledge of lifelong fidelity on your hand? Yes. Do, do they still wear theirs? Yes. Uh, do they still, at least occasionally, not perfectly, but occasionally, still give you ongoing signs by their actions and by their words that they still love you? Yes. Okay. Well, rest. Rest in all the many witnesses that converge together and agree that you are loved by this person. Not perfectly, but they really do love you. And it's not up to your performance. Because, frankly... Between the day you got married and now, you screwed up a thousand times. And they still love you anyway. I know it's not perfect, but do you see the difference? The love of Jesus and His grace is much like the second one. He's made promises, He's made pledges, He's about to love us and never forsake us. It's a done deal. And we can be confident of it. Uh, quickly, let me just uh, point out a couple things that can happen to you or in you if you're not clear about the gospel or confident about it. I'll do this quickly, and because uh, I think it's important. These kind of things can sneak into our lives and rob us of things that are really important. Uh, so these are three grievous lies if we don't understand the gospel. Uh, one, and this is something you might hear occasionally, is this claim that doctrine divides. A claim that doctrine divides. And uh, this is often a pithy alliteration that's dragged out when Christians agree, and it's sort of a subtle uh, I, implication that, like, hey, we should just dumb things down and not talk about doctrine because it only leads to division. Well, that's actually just dumb thinking. Um, actually, we just need to think a little better. And the better thinking is this. Doctrine doesn't divide. Bad doctrine divides. Bad theological thinking divides. Good theological thinking, like what's going on here, where you wrestle with the Scriptures and, and come to agreement on what the Gospel is all about, that leads to togetherness. That's what happens. This thing is followed up by a conciliatory letter where brothers are writing to brothers and saying, listen, I'm sorry, those guys, we didn't send them. <laughs> but let's be clear that we share one faith in Jesus. Uh, so clarity regarding the gospel brings us together. It doesn't 
It doesn't divide. It promotes charity and unity. Uh, second, if you don't understand the, the clearness of the gospel that Jesus saves us by grace alone, and you're not confident in that, then what you end up doing is inserting some kind of nature of works. And, uh, and, and you might not actually even know you're doing this, but I hear this sometimes. It's almost like an insinuation or implication. And maybe you don't mean it regarding like salvation, but you mean it regarding maturity. So I saw the billboard. Callie and I were driving to Delaware, which is closer than I realized. And it uh, doesn't make any sense on the map. How's it on that side of Philadelphia? Um, and I saw this billboard. You've seen it probably a hundred times. Real Christians, and it says something. Yeah, yeah. And it made me think, like, oh, I know people that talk that way. And uh, no doubt there is such a thing as real Christians and people that aren't Christians. But there are ways of thinking about this that are really unhealthy. It's where Christians will begin to think and, and, and grab convictions and preferences, and it'll take the form of this. If you're a real Christian, you will believe and act and feel and do like me. And just some of the ones I've encountered over 30 years or 40 years are, these won't all make sense to you, but some of them will. Real Christians only read the King James or the ESV. Uh, Real Christians only vote Republican or they're woke. Uh, Real Christians get baptized in our church or they have a second baptism of the Holy Spirit. Or real Christians don't listen to secular music. Or if you're a real Christian, you won't listen to bad CCM music. Or real Christians won't date. Or real Christians don't go to secular schools. Or I could go on forever, actually. Because it's the nature of the insecure, prideful human heart to drag anything we can into that side of the equation if we're insecure in the love of Jesus. We'll take any kind of thought, any kind of behavior, any kind of thing that we do well or better than others that sets us apart, that makes us feel better because we're insecure in the love of Jesus. And the antidote to this is Remember with clarity the grace of Jesus. You're saved by grace alone. You can be confident in it. Your performance has nothing to do with it. And when you adopt this ugly idea that because of this or that, you're somehow a better Christian than others, friend, you are, you're, you're dredging up a wedge that keeps people apart. The one family of God being split apart. Paul, who's fighting for the truth of the gospel, is still able to say, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. That's what it's supposed to be like. So be careful and uh, watch out for that nasty pride in your heart that might make you think you're better than others. I guarantee you it's rooted in insecurity and a misunderstanding of the love of Jesus. And and lastly, um, there's another one that's, sort of related, and uh, it's this, that some people think, because I'm saved by grace alone, I can do whatever I want. And uh, that is sort of opposite of this, but equally ugly. Um, And it's really clear, actually, in the Bible, that, what did I do with the pen? I'll find it. (laughs) Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. Jesus loves me and sets me as I am. But then he begins to make me like Jesus. Uh, I don't know what this is actually supposed to mean. He makes me like Jesus. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, that the being like Jesus is not on this part of the equation. It's not because I trust in Jesus and try to act like him that he saves me. No, it's that I trust in Jesus alone and he saves me. The Bible calls this justification. And he begins to work in me to make me like Jesus. He calls that sanctification. And that has the shape of love. That looking like Jesus, becoming like him, is loving God and loving others. Ten Commandments, Sermon on the Mount, whatever you want to call it, over and over. That's what it looks like to become more like Jesus. And you have a picture of that here. There are four pretty strange, odd things tacked onto the end of this letter. I don't know if you noticed. Hey, like, lay off the blood and the strangled animals. Um, and uh, that's what it says. I didn't make it up. Uh, and um, scholars debate what this means. But I think the best explanation is they're counseling outsiders who are now living together in a community with people that are Jewish and saying, look, I know this is not a problem for you, but all these cultural, cultic, temple, like temp, temple sacrificial things that you guys are used to doing that are profane to the Jews, yeah, we'd like for them to grow up in this and be like Paul, Peter who left it behind. But love means you're willing to conform to them. You're willing to give up your freedom for them. Out of love, you're willing to embrace and limit yourself for their sake. Look, that means you can't do whatever you want. If you really love people, you're willing to give up some things for them. And where this all sort of ends up, I think, that we overlook is lastly joy. This doesn't feel like a joyful text. We're talking about fighting and law and circumcision and uh, all these other things. But joy. But joy. When, when Paul came to these towns and told people what had been happening, it says they, they rejoiced. And I think if we actually understand what Jesus has done for us, man, that looks confusing. It's a good thing I'm not a professor. The bottom <laughs> equation, if we trust in Jesus, we know nothing we do makes us right with him. But he alone makes us right. And we're clear about that. And we're confident in it. Our lives will be characterized not by pride, not by division, but by joy. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll know you and I, we're, we're the same. Yeah, I mean, yeah, your, your, your issues and definitely your issues. Your issues, for sure. I don't know about your issues. But they're basically the same. If Jesus doesn't come down and rescue us, there's no hope for us. But he did. He personally, deeply loved me enough to take flesh and come down for me. And his grace is enough for me. And I can rest in it. And that grants me joy and confidence and love for you. I don't have to stop. I'm not a real Christian, you're a fake Christian. None of that stuff, friends. This is the good news for us and for the whole world. And that's something worth fighting for. If this makes no sense to you, like you're literally like, I don't understand whether you're new to Christianity or maybe you've got a bad uh, bunch of teaching in Christianity, uh, I would encourage you to fight for clarity about it. Come and talk to us. Love to talk to you about this. Or if you're, you're just sort of stuck and you've forgotten what it's like to have this joy, I want you to remember, there's nothing outside of the equation that you can do to make him love you more. You're stuck in a performance trap. Everything here is telling you you've got to perform. Jesus did everything that needed to be done to make you right with the Father. 
All right, let's pray. Our good Lord Jesus, we pray you be kind to grant us clarity regarding just how good uh, your good news is.